we are, um, or we just started a series um, called Four Chairs, okay? And it's based on a book by that man, Dan Spader, um, his book called Four Chair Discipling. And basically, you know, Sherwood Oaks across all campuses, um, basically we want to be identified as a church that is passionate about discipleship. Okay, we want to be a place, we want this to be a place where true discipling occurs for you, for me, for our friends and our family. Because discipleship is about what goes into truly growing in an authentic, real relationship with the one true God. And so obviously, that's what we want to happen here. We want, to, we want this to be a place where people are truly getting to know God. Okay, and just like any relationship, there's phases, there's processes, there's transitions, okay, just like any relationship. And so the four chairs that he uses in this book, these, the four chairs that we're going to discuss over the next couple of weeks um, are meant to help us understand kind of what the phases are like within our relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? What, if we have a real relationship with God, what are some of the phases? What are, the, what are those things look like, all right? And so today we're looking at the first chair, Okay, it's the first chair. I brought this one up just kind of as a visual. I'll probably point to it just randomly. Um, but the first thing, the first thing that we need to understand, what this first chair represents is if we're starting a real relationship with God, the term he used to, and it was kind of, it was in small letters. I don't know if you saw it, but this chair refers to the lost, okay? People who sit in this chair are lost. Now, um, I don't know about you, but I would, the pride in me could potentially find that term offensive, all right? I don't want people telling me I'm lost, okay? But this refers to lost, and I just want you to hear me out on two things, which maybe if it is offensive or if you don't quite understand that, maybe this will help in understanding and help ease the blow of the idea of being lost, okay? And the first thing is everybody sits in this chair, okay? Everybody sits in this chair. This is the one chair that applies to all people, Every single person through the history of mankind besides Jesus sits in this chair. We are all lost. Scripture says, I got a couple of verses. Isaiah 53, 6, all right, God tells us, he says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all been lost. Each one of us, we turned to our own way. We trust ourselves to be God. We are all lost at some point, Okay. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Righteousness refers to our closeness to God. And so that brings me to kind of my, the second thing I want to point out about, about being lost. Um, if you're like me, when I think of the idea of being lost, um, to me, it's about my proximity to a certain place, okay? If I'm lost, like for example, if I want to go to Florida and I end up in New York, all right, somehow end up in New York, what makes me lost is the distance between the place I'm supposed to be at, right? And I just think that's kind of the way we naturally think about lost. Lost is all about where we're at and compared to a place we're supposed to be. But when God tells us we're lost, all right, when God points out that we're all sitting in this chair, what I think he really wants us to take away is the fact Lost to him isn't about our relation to a place. It's about our relation to a person. It's about our relationship, where, where we're at in proximity to him as a person, as a living, personal God, okay? And so with that in mind, please, like, we all sit in this chair. And what puts us in this chair is the fact that deep down, 
It's not that we're in the wrong place. This, this chair shouldn't conjure up guilt and shame. It shouldn't make us want to hide. Honestly, this chair is what should unify us because as we move through this series, the other chairs, we aren't necessarily guaranteed to end up in, but every single one of us will be in this chair and that should honestly unify us. It should unify us and bring us together. And so, and there's hope in it. But so just to point out right now, what puts every single one of us in this chair is the fact that at some point in our life, we don't know, we don't truly know who God actually is, okay? But he loves you, he loves me, he loves our family, he loves our friends, he loves our communities. He wants to change that, all right? And so that's why growing in our relationship with him, growing in discipleship is understanding that this is the starting point. But with that in mind, what's next, all right? What does the person in this chair need, all right? What needs to happen for this person, whether it's you, me, whoever? Um, In his book, Spader uses an acronym, okay, and it's the acronym CPR, which is kind of cool to revive life, right? But the CPR stands for cultivate, plant, and reap, all right? And so we're going to talk about that just briefly real quick here this morning. I'm going to address the cultivate real quick, and then Nate's going to come up and wrap up with the final two points. Um, But cultivate, okay, when I looked up, you know, the basic overall definitions for cultivate, Um, I kind of came to the general consensus that it is to prepare or work on for the sake of growth, all right? To prepare or work on for the sake of growth. Now, please notice, it doesn't say growth itself, all right? The person in this chair doesn't automatically end up at the fourth chair or the next chair or whatever, all right? It's, there's work that has to go in beforehand, okay? Before growth can even happen. And so, what does that look like for someone spiritually? Um, and so to do that, I want to look at Acts chapter 17. Um, this is one of my favorite passages. It is a long passage. In fact, I don't think I edited this one down as much as I did in my notes. And so you're welcome to read along, but I kind of diced it up a lot just for the sake of time. Um, okay, and so maybe you just might want to listen to me, but I do highly recommend going back and reading this passage because it's super powerful and there's so much God wants to reveal to us through this account. Okay, so Acts chapter 17, I'm going to start in verse 16. And um, so Paul, just in the midst of all his journeys, he ends up in Athens, okay? So this is why Paul is in Athens. And it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so it says, while he was there, he reasoned with them in the synagogue as well as in the marketplace day by day. Every day he's in He's with these people, discussing, debating, getting to know, talking with these people day and day or day by day with those who happen to be there. And then it says, later they took him and they brought him to one of their meetings. And it says, Paul stood up in their meeting and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He says, for as I walked around, I looked carefully. Notice that word carefully. He was intentionally curious. He wanted to know about their lives. He said, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription. It said, to an unknown God. And he says, so you are ignorant to the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He's saying, hey, I know who your unknown God is. All your idols aren't satisfying you, and I can prove to you why. I know who your unknown God is. 
He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live by temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Okay, and once again, love this passage, wish we could expand on it a ton, but for the sake of what we're talking about here this morning, what we really need to take away from this account is Paul was in a brand new city, a brand new culture, a whole new environment, probably a very intimidating, overwhelming environment, okay, but instead of shying away, instead of running to the side and saying, hey, I can tell you about God if you want to come over here, he jumps into their culture. All right, he jumps into their world. All right, he wants to know about it every day. He starts reasoning with them. He starts discussing with them. He starts wanting to get to know things. And what does it say happened? It said because of that, he started building rapport with them. All right, the, the people in Athens, they began to trust Paul. And it's, in fact, they trusted him so much, they invited him further into their world. And they said, hey, hey, come to one of our meetings. They come to the meeting. And on top of that, they ask him to speak at this meeting. Okay, and when he speaks, what does he do? Does he start just automatically bashing their idols? Does he start condemning them? No, he uses them against themselves in a way, lovingly, all right, because he had spent so much time truly caring, like it said, carefully examining their world. They could tell he genuinely cared about who they were and their culture, and because he had actually gotten to know their world, he took the knowledge that he had and he used it to introduce Christ. He introduced Christ from within. He didn't, he didn't make them go blindly find God. He said, no, I'm going to bring God to you. And I guarantee you, every person in your life, including you and whoever, there, if someone is in this chair, there is always a way to introduce Jesus from the inside. Because I guarantee you, every person in this chair is missing him. Okay? And I want to continue talking about this because I love Jesus and I love, but once again, I got to stay focused. So for the sake of what we're talking about, cultivate, what I really want you to take, a, take away for the point I'm trying to make, all right, everyone's lost. Everyone sits in this chair. Scripture tells us we're all lost. What makes us lost isn't because we don't have our life together. We don't have it right. What makes us lost is we don't know who God is. We don't know who God is, and he wants us to truly know him. Okay, and so for people who, by God's grace, has moved on to the next chair, how do we love on people in this chair? How do we approach them? We take an advice from Paul, and before we even get to Jesus, we just enter their world, all right? We prove that we, genu we genuinely care about them. We enter their world, we get to know them, we get to know their vantage point, their perspective, and God provides opportunities, but for the sake of what I'm supposed to talk about, that's it. We have a short clip, and Nate is going to come up and wrap this up. I, I know what you're thinking. How in the world is Nate going to follow that up with something spiritual this morning? Um, and I really don't know. But every time I hear the word CPR, I think of this scene, or I think of the, the sand a lot, the pool scene, are my, my two scenes I think of when I think of uh, CPR. But in all seriousness, the reason this came to mind when... Um, when Ben and John and I were sitting down together uh, planning for today is that we laugh at the absurdity of even imagining treating a person fighting for their physical life or in a dire situation of life or death, we laugh at, at the lack of urgency, right? We, we laugh at how um, just absurd it is. So why is it easy? My question for this morning is why is it easy to have that same attitude for someone that's fighting for their spiritual life? And I think that is... The question that I had this morning is that I think that's why these 
this scene is hilarious because none of us could even imagine, um, none of us could imagine acting this way in that situation. So um, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, in our sin. It is by grace that we have been saved. God made us alive in Christ, Spader says. The lost don't need to be rehabilitated. They need to be resurrected. Spiritually dead people sitting in chair one, and as Ben said, just as we all were, and we all have been, need to understand the reality that if we are without Christ, we're lost, we're alone, and we're dead. We cannot save ourselves. Howard Hendricks states, we think we're in the land of the living on our way to the land of the dying. My friend, nothing can be further from biblical truth. You and I are in the land of the dying and on our way to the land of the living. Who would have thought that the cast from the video of The Office could teach us something this Sunday morning? Uh, ben talked about cultivating the ground for a person in chair one, preparing them, <clears throat> excuse me, preparing them for this reality, asking, asking them to come and see Come and see what, what, what they could be missing. Come and see what makes my life different. Putting ourselves in the world, in their world, and inviting them to come and see this good news for themselves. So the next step in the spiritual CPR process is the P, planting. Now, however, we can't plant a seed in a person in chair one unless we've put in the work of cultivating. And I think that's where sometimes we think we can jump ahead as Christians and, and plant the seed, but we've done none of the groundwork. We've done none of the work um, of to be able to even for, to deserve to tell them the message of hope. We don't deserve it because we haven't put the work in to be able to, to cross that line. And all that happens then is we sow our seed, and it falls on hard soil, and it doesn't help. So my question is, do we have any farmers in here this morning? Any farmers? I see a couple hands. All right. Um, well, listen how I, Isaiah explains this. Um, in Isaiah 28, 23 through 29. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, nor is the wheel of a cart rolled over cumin. Caraway is beat out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go threshing it forever. The wheels of a threshing cart may be rolled over it, but one does not use horses to grind grain. All this comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent." So Isaiah keeps asking all these rhetorical questions. And the answer to all these questions is yes. Breaking up the hard ground is one of the hardest parts. But it's critical and it's crucial as been discussed. However, he goes on to address the planting and sowing of the seeds. Now I know you're all experts like me when it comes to uh, planting spices and grains like caraway, cumin, wheat, barley, and spelt. Um, as I read it, I just kept nodding my head and answering, yeah, yeah, it is. Just hoping that Isaiah was actually a green thumb and knew what he's talking about because I didn't wasn't able to follow him. I have no idea how to grow any of those. But I do know that if a plant is going to grow, it needed to be planted in the right time, in the right place, at the right depth, and in the right way. I think we can all agree to that. When it comes to planting in a relationship with someone in chair one, 
I know there's no magic formula. I don't have the magic answer to say this is how and when and the right time for that, that this person is ready to receive this message of, of grace. But God does. And I, and I, I hope you heard it in, that, in all, all that that I couldn't follow. But in verse 26, Isaiah tells us that his God instructs him and teaches him the right way. And later in verse 29, he says, All this comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful. And this is great news. God is with us, and he will teach us how. He's not sending us out to know how to do it, when to do it, and the right way to do it by ourselves. And I think that takes uh, the pressure out of it, the situation. You know that God's already gone before you, and as you've cultivated, God has been there cultivating that heart with you um, to know when that right time is. So I love my role here on the west side. Um, I am in the seed sowing business. I am upstairs either with our kids in the morning, um, teaching them um, all that I can at that point and hoping that somehow I... I teach them what they need to hear that morning. Or maybe it's Wednesday night when I'm wearing my cape, hoping to teach the kids how to, to be a superhero. Um, and, and on Wednesday nights, Ben, Becky, Jason, all of our volunteers and I, uh, we get to plant seeds. And I always hope and, and pray that I can teach a great lesson or I can make something stick in, with a kid. I can maybe say the right thing, but in reality, God is in charge of all that. He's already working out his wonderful plan. He just needs me to be available uh, and not just be available, but be prepared. And I think that's sometimes where we, we miss as well. We're available and we're ready, but we're not prepared. We, we probably haven't got ourselves much out of seat one. We're just excited about our faith and we want to share it with everyone. Um, and, that's, and that's great. And, and, and that's a great thing to, we need that. We need that excitement, but we also need to be prepared and trust that God will know the right time, the right depth, the right place, and the right way for us to be able to sow that seed. So our, our youth staff... We may never, ever get to, to reap the harvest of what we plant. And that's the hard thing. Even in teaching, I teach my second graders. And um, sometimes I get to revisit and I get to see them. A lot of my kids now are, uh, some of them are starting families and um, getting married, my first crew. But I may not, I, I don't get to see that reaping right away. I sow the seed and I hope and I pray for those kids up here and my kids at school. And, um, but I may never get to see the reaping side of it. I may never get to reap that harvest with them. But you better believe I'm going to be the first one to celebrate when I see someone dunking them in our water trough or when I hear that they've come to know a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to be right there with them. I don't care whether it's me that gets to do the reaping. And that's also sometimes we want to see the reaping now. I want this person to get it, and I want them to go and, and take off. And, and we forget that grace is messy. It was messy in our lives. Why, why do we not expect it to be messy in someone else's? Why we need to, to commit to I'm going to love this person. I'm going to enter their world, and I'm not going to bail the second they slip up or the second they fall back into this chair. And that sometimes is the hardest part, is the hardest part of trusting God's timing, God's plan, God's, God's way, and that's hard. So I kind of addressed it, but finally we come to the reaping. The last part of the CPR, the spiritual CPR, is reaping. Every farmer knows that you can't reap before you sow, and that every the amount of reaping that, that you'll get to collect or harvest is based directly on the amount of sowing that you did. You're not going to reap more than you sowed, and you can't reap without sowing. So the harvest will come when the time is right, and that's not dependent on any of those other circumstances. We need to sow and sow greatly, but that means we have to do a lot of cultivating, as Ben talked about. Are, are we just staying in our safe church bubbles? Are we staying in our safe Bible study bubbles? 
Um, trust me, I know there, there's, there are spiritually dead people sitting next to you in church and next to you in your Bible study. And, and the, the difference is that we have to remember that we have to meet people where they are and that Jesus was willing to leave the comfort and glory of heaven to come and be that for us. So why are we not willing to get out of our bubbles and go and invest in the life of a sinner? You know what Jesus was named? A friend of sinners. It's not a put down. That's a compliment. And I want to be that. I want to be a friend of sinners. But instead, we're afraid that of putting our kids in that place because we want to protect our kids. But yet, our kids could be the, a bigger light in that, in that darkness than we could. And, but we, we want to keep them in our, in our bubble and protect them in every way. And, I, and I'm not speaking down to that. I, I'm the biggest helicopter dad there is. But, I, but I, I think there needs to be a balance. We need to teach our kids that it's okay. Go into their world. And guess what? It's not going to look like your world. And that's okay. But they're going to see that light in you. And that's maybe the door that will open by you cultivating and you breaking ground with those people. So when the time's right and we've put in uh, the, 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 the hard work, we'll get a spader We'll get to do what Spader says is share the good news, the gospel, clearly and concisely. That's the planning being planned. And then we can call on a response from that person in chair one and hopes to help them and move along with them into chair two. So chair one in the disciple-making process is critical as CPR is for our physical life as well as it is for our spiritual life. We have to remember that Jesus is not the best way. He's the only way. And that's the hard thing sometimes is our, our world is teaching us that, oh, well, yeah, that's a good idea or that's, that's really great. No, it's the only, the only way. He forgives our sins, promises us eternal life to those that believe in him. That is why we need to have a sense of urgency to those people that God's put in our lives that are spiritually dead or spiritually lost or seeking. We need to have a sense of urgency, not like the cast from the office. You might be thinking this morning that, um, of some people that God's put in your life. And this is where, um, this is kind of where my, my holdup is as well. I have these people in my life that I so desperately pray for. I want them to come to know a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But I don't know how to cross that line. I have my professional people that I work with at school. I have, a lot of them are Christians, but a lot of them um, are not. And I have such a hard time of knowing when that right time is or, or then how to cross that line with them. I, I, I will share, I, I, they know my faith, they know, um, they know what, I, what I stand for, they know what I believe in, but it's a hard conversation to cross that line. And, it, and if you feel that with me as well, um, I, I, I know that our church has done a great job of, um, of trying to help us as a church do that. And one of those ways is through our One Life, not our life groups, but a, a, a One Life ministry. And it's a discipleship ministry. And um, that ministry is a process of helping us tackle that exact struggle of, um, of a person in our lives that we care so deeply about and we want to share with them what, what we feel is the most important thing in our life, but we don't know how to cross that line. So I want to read for you just real quick. Um, it's Sean Green, our, our Bedford campus minister, and he um, is kind of the, the, the expert behind this um, one life. And so I just searched on our, on our church website, what is one life? And that question Sean addresses. And I, I just want to read it um, for you. He says this, what is one life? One of our values at Sherwood Oaks is we, li we live like everyday missionaries. 
For some people, they hear the value, that value and they know exactly what it means, whether it's because they have a gift for sharing the gospel with others or because they've seen it lived out in a person who led them to Jesus. For others, they either don't know what that means or what they think it means scares them and they don't want any part of it. One Life helps us all live this value out in a non-threatening, highly relational way. One Life is about being a spiritual influencer in someone's life by developing a friendship with them, listening to their stories, and always asking the question, God, what is their next step? Not what's my next step, what is their next step so I can pray and help them in that process. It's, it's taking the focus off me and putting it on my One Life person that I want to pray for, that I want to see it. What's their next step so I can pray and help them get there? He says One Life is a way for our church to live like everyday missionaries in our neighborhoods, work, and community. So I just encourage you, if you're interested in One Life, Sean goes uh, further on the website, um, answering a lot of questions about that One Life. And as a church, we're going to revisit that soon. John didn't give me an exact um, date, but we're going to revisit those One Lives and be praying about One Life, someone we want to share this message for. Because it is urgent. It really is urgent. And, and we need to, to live like it's urgent. Um, and, uh, and, and how do we balance that with being real? The person in chair one is not a project. They're, they're a person. They're a family member. They're a friend. They're someone we love and care for deeply. And we're not telling them, hey, I've got the answer. We're just telling them, hey, this is what God has shown me, and he might be able to show you. And we can't treat them as a project, or, or we've lost it. And that's, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus became a friend of sinners, and we need to do that as well. So we've come to a time in our service where um, we uh, take communion. And part of that taking communion, we were, we're remembering that Jesus died a sinner's death. A sinner's death on a cross, but he conquered that death and rose again from the grave. And he was motivated by love. Not out of duty, as we talked about this morning during worship. Not as a, an obligation, but out of love he was motivated by. And that's that's the, what I want to follow, is the, is the person that's motivated by love is who I want to model my life after. He was mo- and he was uh, motivated by that same love that should motivate us for, for the person in that, the, the, the Christ follower here that has that person in that first chair as we cultivate their hearts and, and hope, um, you know, maybe to plant some seeds and maybe reap that harvest with them one day. So if you're in chair one, as we all have been, I thank you for seeking us out. It's our job to seek you out, and we've, we've dropped the ball on that. So if you're here and you're in chair one, thank you. Thank you for, for allowing us to, to share um, and, and you coming to us, but it's our turn. To, we should be going to you. Um, if, you're already, if you've already left chair one, let today be the day you enter into the world um, and be known as a friend of sinners and, and truly be known as a friend of sinners because your salvation wasn't only for you. Uh, it, you are now a part of God's CPR team. To, bring, to hope to bring someone else to their salvation too. Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, we, help, we pray um, and ask you, God, for, to help us have a sense of urgency. God, help us be motivated by the same love that you showed for us. While we were still sinners, God, you died for us. God, help us to work at, at do, put in the work of cultivating those hearts of people that you've put in our lives that we love and care about so deeply, God. And help us be prepared to share about the only one and true living God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.